raindrop reflecting on the water as the sun shuts her eyes don't know why you'll uncover watch the tide rolling with the moonlight everything is silent on this wheezy piano You are listening to Missing Magnolia, Scarlett and Michelle here. We are going to be discussing child trafficking and human trafficking with our guest today, Megan de Otremont. We've been wanting to cover this topic for a while now. Can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what you do? Hi, my name is Megan Dochmont. I'm from the Children's Advocacy Network. I am a child trafficking coordinator. We wear many hats here at the Advocacy Center. We're victim-centered. We're ready to support families and children that have experienced a realm of abuse that starts with physical, sexual assault, witness to violence, domestic violence, homicide, neglect, and we specialize in forensic interviewing which I am also a forensic interviewer for children. I've been trained to talk to kids in a non-suggestive, non-leading way in a safe environment. I'd help kids tell their story of fortunate abuse. We work alongside with law enforcement and child protection services. They are the only people that can refer these children to us. We also have many programs such as forensic interviewing and the child trafficking program, which we kind of started up about three years ago. Once I transitioned from forensic interviewing into the trafficking coordinator, we work alongside with DCFS and law enforcement. So we have an MDT program, which stands for multidisciplinary team members, which also consists of our local DA's office, prosecutors, judges, fans, juvenile probation, parole, and others such as that. We all help the children and families come to a one-stop shop to be able to talk about their abuse and get futuristic services to help them transition with healing. A couple years ago, trafficking and child trafficking really started to flare up in our community. Whenever I was doing forensic interviews with children, just about general abuse and neglect and sexual abuse, that kind of plays hand in hand with child exploitation. Wow, so much. And this is just so aptly timed for my life right now because I was just talking to my class on sexual offenses about the process for victims and how that can be the secondary trauma experience through the hospital setting all the way through the judicial process for children or adults who experience sexual violence. It can be incredibly traumatic. So it sounds really wonderful that this exists for people here. I think the number one takeaway is, and I couldn't say this if I wasn't a forensic interview, but to limit the amount of times that that child goes through telling their story about the abuse, because it's very traumatizing. And we want to lessen that as much as possible. And actually, not a lot of people know about the CAC, the Children's Advocacy Center, and how it's designed to be a one-stop shop so that child does not have to relive that trauma over and over again when they tell the cop and they tell the nurse and they tell the bus driver or mom or dad and then it gets thrown out in court they lose credibility because their story changes because different people are asking them different questions that may lead them into giving a falsified disclosure when they don't even mean to do that. Can you tell us a little bit about your day-to-day? Is there a typical day for what you do? 
Like I said, I wear a lot of different hats here, but typical day-to-day for the trafficking program is if a child is seen for a forensic interview and we have a limited amount of disclosure summary that law enforcement or CPS provides in our file. So we get the child's date of birth, their age, who is the non-offending parent of the type of abuse that or caregiver that has been done to that child. They'll come in and then I'll look and assess that summary of disclosure of what happened to that kid. To give an example, if that child is coming in for sexual abuse against mother's boyfriend. So we have a, a lot of typical ones like that. And I'll look and see if there was any type of photos taken or if maybe that child met a older significant partner online through Instagram, Snapchat, Discord, gaming websites. So a lot of trafficking, as y'all probably know already, it's happening online and it's affecting all uh, types of children. It doesn't matter what race, economic status you're from, what type of household you're from. If you have a phone, if you have internet, Wi-Fi, you are very susceptible and vulnerable to trafficking or being high risk in that nature to becoming trafficked. So I'll look at the interviews coming in for that week or that day, and I'll assess if that child is high risk for trafficking, already confirmed, depending on the specific type of disclosure, and we'll sit in on the forensic interview with the forensic interviewer, and we'll monitor and we'll kind of guide the questions in a way that we'll ask them certain questions to be able to know if they have been trafficked or exploited through online apps or gaming websites, and then we'll assist with law enforcement and CPS We'll just kind of do pre and post meetings about what we're going to do and how we're going to help this child family in terms of getting resources or going to court for testimony and charges being dropped or pursued. Then I'll take an online file, follow up the family and do a needs assessment on the child and that family to see if their basic needs are being met or if they need help with that. Sometimes depending, it's very individualized for that child and family because every kid comes in with a different experience or a different walk in life. They might need medical care. They might need transitional housing. A lot of the kids we see come in and out of foster care and have different multiple placements through the year. I've seen a child come in, go from one foster home to the other or multiple kids that are running away from foster homes because they can't find a right placement or the appropriate placement. So I'll try to work with DCFS and try to get them an appropriate placement or a a housing that's more stable to their needs. And we'll just kind of do a lot of case management, a lot of follow-up with that child. I'll have direct contact with that child to kind of be that steady person throughout the whole process. That doesn't mean that I'm gonna talk to them for just a month and let them go. A lot of times these victims or these children that are in recovery, they have triggers and they have a story that always seems to unfold over the time that they receive therapy and they need that one steady person to just follow them through and just help them transition back into just a functional, thriving citizen. With trafficking victims, there's a lot of specific deep trauma that's a lot different than other people who may have experienced trauma in their own way. We just try to help them transition and try to be their support system when no one else has. I really like that you brought up the some commonalities that you see. Can you talk about being in foster care or temporary placement and that association with perhaps running away? And then about the types of cases of human trafficking. I think that the average person 
thinks that human trafficking functions like taken or like a man in a white van comes and snatches this middle class kid off of their perfectly manicured lawn. And I'm guessing that's not the average case. Would you mind telling us a little more about that? So you are exactly right. I actually talked to 500 kids the past uh, on Monday and Tuesday, a prevention program for human trafficking. And basically that targets kids in schools to tell them that everybody's vulnerable and it doesn't happen like Hollywood portrays it. Although, yes, it does happen in a white van kidnapped and you're sold under false pretenses at a brothel in Southeast Asia. All that does happen. I'm not minimizing those children in the country, in the rural communities, especially in Louisiana with agriculture and farming and just small rural communities where the opioid epidemic is popping everywhere, especially in Alexandria where we are, it happens in a different way. So you have sex trafficking of children, you have labor trafficking of children, you have a commercial sexual exploitation of children, which all ties in together of exploiting children through online social media. Or you have something called familial trafficking, That is what I want to talk about here today, and that's what we're seeing here in Alexandria and other parishes that are that we serve. What familial trafficking is is obviously it's what you're thinking is involves family members exploiting their underage children for substances, any type of services, money, status within the community in exchange for something of value, which is drugs, money, shelter. A lot of our families are poverty stricken. They don't have the means to get their basic needs met. So to give you an example is we've had plenty of kids come in and be victimized under sexual abuse. They might have the family and mom and dad. They are drug addicts. They have children. They might let a perpetrator in knowing that, hey, if you can pay my bills or you can keep my light on or we can trade out our food stamps in exchange for you touching my kid or sexually exploiting my kid, I'll just kind of like ignore what's happening to my kid, won't tell, won't do anything in exchange for if you can pay my rent. That's I'm just going to exploit my kid because the hunger of their substance abuse outweighs protecting their children. A lot of people think that is very ludicrous. It's just kind of mind-boggling to not even want to protect your kid. But what we want people to understand that this is a real thing. This is real evil around us that people are really exploiting their kids for getting their basic needs met. It's just very unfortunate. And we're seeing so many kids come in for a forensic interview just to talk about sexual abuse. But when they actually get to know that they are a victim of sex trafficking and they never even knew that they were a victim in the first place. You're a mom. How do you deal with the emotional toll and how do you decompress from some of these really hard situations? Great question. A lot of people ask me that all the time and others who work here. I think it's about the person and how what kind of thick skin that you have and how do you compartmentalize it in your brain? How do you walk into work and you switch it on and you switch it off? Some people have it and some people don't. When I go home, I just have to separate it. I say a couple of prayers each night for each kid that I have. It does make you very hypervigilant a lot more than other lay citizens around here that don't deal with the abuse every day. I send both of my kids to daycare and I really, really have to not be so skeptical of who's taking care of my children because at work, I would like never send my kids anywhere. I would just wrap them in a bubble and keep them inside my house. But that's not realistic. And there's just part of me that just has to let that go and has to trust a little. 
but still be very observant and still be very protective in my own way. It's just really about compartmentalizing it, keeping boundaries. So I have boundaries at home. I don't bring work home. And when I come into work, I turn home life off because if you would let your home life come into a forensic interview when you're talking about a, a child that looks like your child or is the same age as your child when they were victimized, if you let that sink in, I just, I don't think you would make it. And a lot of people do get burnt out. What would you say to people who want to be like you, want to be helpers in this way? What steps should they take? We need all the help we can get. These kids need so much love and attention and they just need a sounding board. So I say if you are into helping the community, especially want to help vulnerable children, just do it. Go to school. You do have to go to college and have a, at least a bachelor's degree. A lot of uh, social workers come through here. I majored in child and family studies and sociology. So some type of criminal sociology background, psychology major, social workers, that would all fit in here. And it's not for everybody, but I think it is worth a try. And if you have a heart for serving kids and families, I say give it a try. And if it's for you, it's for you. Are there any success stories that you can share? There are a couple of success stories in a way that there's either prosecution that led to bigger and better charges and bonds for those perpetrators to be put away for life or for 50 plus years. We consider those very successful. And then with the child, the true success is if they could let go of that trauma and forgive and move on and become thriving citizens of the community. A lot of these kids come in and they tell you the tip of the iceberg but you will never know what is underneath all of that. You can talk to a kid for hours and days and months, establish that rapport, but you will really never know what they go through. If they give you the chance to be able to tell you just a snippet of their story of abuse, you won. Because coming from the outside of a stranger, telling your personal stories of trauma to a stranger that you just met within 30 minutes coming to a center, that says a lot. This one girl fell asleep. She couldn't relate to any kids her age because she was so severely abused and trafficked. She was placed in a home, home after home. I think she had about 16 placements in a year. There was drugs and substance abuse involved as well to cope with her trauma. And I just heard that she was finally placed in a loving family that went to a doctor. Her trauma has been dealt with. She's seen a therapist and there is some stability. So think about going from being homeless, to being trafficked, to being abused since you were born, to 16 foster homes in a year, and then now finally going to one home for that whole year, and they're wanting to adopt you. Although we didn't get to that prosecution level of seeing justice for that child, I think she's in a really good place now because she's finally found love, and she's finally learning what true love is supposed to look like. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that'll really resonate with people. For classmates or for other moms, are there certain tells from your vantage point that people can maybe recognize early? I know that's probably hard because they're buried. Are there things that people can look out for? There are red flags and signs of a person being sexual abused or, you know, specifically trafficked. You could look as for in a child or in a teenager, especially if you're a teacher or a mom, your child is on her cell phone or his cell phone more than usual. Or maybe they have multiple cell phones that you know that they can't pay for or you're not paying for. Or get it from somewhere. And if that child is 13 or 14 and she has or he has multiple cell phones, 
you know that's really not normal acting withdrawn or depressed more than usual and like i said if you're with your child you know what their normal is so if they go outside of that realm of their own normal or their standards and it's dramatically changed or had a snowball effect you might know something else is going on anxiety attacks if they have a significantly older partner that they're all of a sudden hanging around with for teachers if you're in a school and you see this girl that usually comes in with the same set of clothes or not high stylish clothes or high end stuff but then all of a sudden she comes in from the weekend and she has her nails done or her hair is done she has nicer clothes or better clothes or different brand of clothes she might not be getting those things on her own somebody may be supplying that for hospital workers if you see a domestic violence victim uh, or a battered woman and you see a significantly older partner that is with her or he they don't want to leave the room or they're answering questions for that victim very controlling manipulating that's some signs of trafficking or sexual abuse or exploitation if you see cigarette burns multiple bruises or fractures from a history line of abuse those are a lot of signs if a girl comes in and she's had multiple abortions or pregnancies being lost miscarriages over a short period of time those are a lot of key signs a lot of people talk about branding for trafficking victims i would say that we don't see a lot of typical branding especially on these girls now there are some and those are very they might have come from new orleans and it's very urban like with the tattoos but if you do see a tattoo a lot of it is maybe on the chest or on the arm or on the back of the calf or maybe facial tattoos but a lot of times traffickers or pimps are just trying to get ahead of the game because they know what cops and us are looking for so they kind of disguise the branding they might have different color uh, stripes dyed hair or they might have certain types of piercings that differentiate from different girls I think those are easy enough red flags to look for. Are there ways for people to get involved that could be community-oriented or volunteer-based? Right now, for our program and our agency, the most that people can do in the community is get educated and sign up for a training that I put on, my coworker Rachel does. I just hope to raise awareness and just keep raising awareness, and that's how you can participate into combating trafficking or ending slavery is just to be aware and just acknowledge that it happens. I've learned so much from our call. So thank you again for taking the time. I think this is going to really be helpful to a lot of people. And I hope that we can do our small part and raise some awareness. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me.